helping someone get a job, that's one thing. But helping someone navigate their career, that's even better. Welcome to the Offer Podcast. This is Brandon Amargi, your host. Episode 8, Guest Taheed Cater. Today, TK is going to help us learn how a proper view of self-growth can skyrocket your career navigation. TK is a person that I think everyone should pay attention to. He's someone who worked extremely hard in his early 20s, uh, figuring out what his skill sets were, what he was good at, and then taking that, that ability and creating a platform for him to now do what he wants in his career at such an early age. He's found multiple successes and is continuing to grow and learn and motivate others to do the same. So let's listen in as he explains his mindset and his thought process on self-growth. Good. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Awesome. Awesome. Glad <laughs> we finally made this happen. <laughs> Agreed. No, very, very happy you could, uh, you could, you could join, man. I'm, I'm, ex- I've been wanting to interview you for a long time. So, TK, really appreciate you taking the time with us today um, on our podcast. And uh, you know, for those who don't know, uh, you know, who you are, can you give us just sort of a quick you know, Cliff Notes version of of your background and and what you're and what you're looking to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hey, everyone. Uh, first of all, Brian, thanks for having me. Super pumped to be on here. Uh, my background: I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, that's how I got my start. I'm now an angel investor. Uh, I got my yeah. start in uh, in my my career working at Bridgewater, which is one of the largest hedge funds in the world. Uh, after that, I started my own company called ToutApp. We made sales engagement software. Uh, we, we raised from Andreessen Horowitz, Jackson Square Ventures, and other. We uh, sold that to a company called Marketo. Uh, I served on the executive team at Marketo, and we just sold that to Adobe uh, for $4.75 billion, which is a great outcome Ooh. for everyone involved. Absolutely. Uh, and now I'm just focused on building out this uh, movement around Unstoppable. Uh, over the last eight to ten years, uh, I've learned a lot around how to live a more proactive life, how to deal with high-stress situations. So that's what we're teaching at Unstoppable, uh, and you can check it out at GetUnstoppable.com. And I've also blogged about building businesses and startups uh, through the journey, so that's at TKCater.com as well. So that's, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Awesome. Very, very cool. Well, we'll, we'll jump right in. Thank you for that uh, quick synopsis. Uh, let's talk about your early life what was your first job ever? The first job you ever had? Uh, first job was <laughs> I was working for the family business. Okay. Uh, it, was a, it was a prepaid calling card business, telecommunications business. Oh, cool. And I was 12 years old. And the first job oh. was handing out flyers on uh, the corner of 74th Street and Roosevelt Avenue, uh, trying to get people, trying to get demand. <laughs> for the, the business that my dad was running uh, in Jackson Heights, Queens. No kidding, wow. So <laughs> had you out on street corners, but with flyers and basically just trying to uh, sort of help the business grow and get people to use your uh, the, the prepaid cards that you guys were um, providing yeah, people exactly. with. exactly. Wow, awesome. Did, now that experience, did I mean, what were what were your thoughts as you were doing it? Was it just sort of something where you're just kind of like, Ah, this is just you know another day you know um, you know out here helping the family or did you did, did something spark in that period of, in that early period of time with with yeah yeah that's no, a good question I, you know I think like you know to give you the context we uh, my family and I we had just moved to New York so I was born in Dhaka, Bangladesh mm-hmm. and at age ten um, my dad was about forty years old. And so it was me and my brother and my mom, so the four of us immigrated to America. Uh, and th- that was like 1993. And my dad was an entrepreneur, so he came here and through the little, I think he came here with about $1,000 in his pocket. 
and uh, through borrowing some money, he started his own business. Mm. And so by the time I was 12, there was like six of us living in a one bedroom apartment in Washington, Queens. Um, and I think the reason I was on the street corner handing off flyers, like my parents didn't make me do any of it. Mm. Uh, in fact, I kind of raised my hand and asked. And uh, to be honest, like I think the feeling in me was like, man, like I need to help. Uh, my dad's working seven days a week. My mom's trying to do her best helping with the business and taking care of us. Like I'm, I'm perfectly able of doing things. I want like put me in coach was kind of the sentiment <laughs> that I had. That's, that's why, that's how it really came about to be honest. No kidding. Awesome. Very cool. So you're in that, you're in that experience, you're, you're learning, you know, you're, and what would you say you were learning at that age? Like, you, you know, you, you're, you're, you're seeing the results of what you're doing. What, what, re, what were the results? What did you see? What did you kind of notice and witness and, and yeah, uh, experience? Well, the funny thing, the funny thing about that is like when you're 12, like only in retrospect, can you, uh, really understand what you learn? At that time, I wasn't really learning. I was more absorbing. Mm. Like I was just in an environment and I was absorbing. So it's funny because like my the, my earliest memory of that was like I was in that street corner, and no one really wanted a flyer. And <laughs> you know, <laughs> marketer me now is like, well, yeah, like no, you're kind of pushing it on them. No one cares. And a certain percentage is a funnel, and a small percentage of people will actually look at it, and an even smaller percentage will actually transact on it. But 12 year old me, I'm like, what's wrong with these people? This is like <laughs> the best thing ever. They all need this. Why are they not taking my flyer? And you know, I think like that's when you absorb in you like, look, if you wanna make a difference or make a change or be noticed, you have to get out there and in people's faces. And mm. you can't just be obnoxious about it. You actually have to communicate value. And so it wasn't just like standing in the street corner and handing who you're handing out and just like hoping that someone grabs the flyer from your hand. It's like standing in the street corner, putting the flyer up, positioning in a certain way, and actually saying to people like, "Hey, do you want to call home at 50% of the cost? Get a prepaid calling card." Mm -hmm. And th those are things like you know, in retrospect, I think back on it, I'm like, man, that was a good lesson to learn. Uh, but 12 year old me didn't understand. I was just like, how do I make this work? Like, how do I actually get in there? And so looking back, I think I was fortunate to be in that kind of environment because it taught me some things that I think still comes into value today. And even a lot of kids today don't learn early enough. It's that you're not entitled to anything. Like no one cares. And so if you want people to care about what you care about, you need to get out there and you need to communicate the value. You need to show why you're different. You need to get in front of people's faces. Otherwise it won't happen on its own. Uh, and I think that's probably one of the biggest things that I learned when I was 12 years old on the street corner handing out flyers. Wow. Wow. No, that's so true. What the guest we had, uh, you know, on the last episode said something similar. He said, you know, that nobody cares about the products that you have. They care about the problems that they have. And if you're right. able to, uh, you know, sh you know, show them something on how they can solve that problem, that there's going to be some real benefit there. So that's, that's awesome that you could witness that and see that. Um, and, and you did that till, till what age, what age were you helping the, the family out? Well, the funny, the funny story about the progression of that job was, uh, I thought the design on the flyers sucked. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so I literally remember like I went up the stairs back into the office I'm like, dad, like, look, we got to redo these flyers. Like no one wants them. Yeah. It's not paying attention. Like this is not working. And he's like, all right, go redesign it and try it out. And so over the, this is like up through college, I mm -hmm. went from being running the flyers uh, in the street corner to actually ended up computerizing the whole business. Uh, instead of manual prepaid calling cards, we automated the whole thing. Wow. Uh, we, we bought out software that helped you like actually have prepaid calling cards. Like at that time we were a calling center. You had mm -hmm. to come to the store and then make the phone call from the store. Mm. And we changed that to an automated prepaid calling card, which like opened up a whole, like that industry started to boom like a few years later, um, where you'd like dial the 800 number, put in the pin code and all of that. So I ended up being sort of my dad's business partner all the way through college until I started my next business, uh, where we grew it to a multi-million dollar business uh, that was profitable. No kidding. So, so you basically helped take your dad's business from 
you know, something that was sort of small time, lo- very local to to something kind of big, basically. I definitely helped. Yeah, I mean, I think for, uh, credit goes to my dad for having the foresight of like we need to use technology to be better. Yeah, but it also goes to him to help let a thirteen, fourteen year old kid help him and, and be like, <laughs> all right, let's go do this. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, it, was, it was team effort, and you know, it helped the family kind of grow and thrive, which was which was awesome. We were very blessed and lucky for having the breaks even that we had to be able to do that, but it worked out well. Yeah. So take, I mean, taking it from, from just local to, to automating it to where, you know, you didn't have to be local to get the card and then, and then taking it online and whatnot, like, like what, like what prompted that? What, what thought, like, how did that even come about? What, what, like, how did you shift the thinking from, you know, from, from sort of local and, and, you know, on that street corner to thinking bigger? Yeah. Uh, and this has happened with pretty much every business that I've ever worked with. Mm-hmm. There's something inside of me that hates an inefficiency. Mm. So, like mm-hmm. for me, it was like this is dumb. Uh, <laughs> and and I, you know, we all felt it. It's like there's got to be a better way to do this. Yeah, and yeah. I think for every company that I've ever started and every project that I've ever worked on, it all came out of this feeling of like this is stupid. There's got to be a better way to do this. And in terms of the the business early on, like I remember, like I I was handing out flyers. My dad was working on the business. My mom had this like label printing machine where she would type in these pin codes, and the label would print, and then she would like put it on the little card. And I'm like, we can do better. Like, there's a, got to be a better way of doing this. <laughs> and uh, I think like that type of thinking where. Uh, you don't accept the status quo, which like everyone says now, right? Like, but no one knows how to like really apply it in their day-to-day lives. It's like, there's a better way. Every, every inefficiency is an opportunity, is a business, is a way of doing something better. And even if you're not an entrepreneur, you're in a job, you find inefficiencies and you make it better. That's, that's an opportunity for growth in your career. And that's something I learned early on, and that's how I applied it. I'm like, look, there's got to be a better way of doing this. My mom should not be typing in numbers and printing a label. Uh, she should be doing something higher value for the business. Mm. So that's that's kind of how I thought about it. Wow, no, that's great, and that's a great great um, point to bring up. Is you know at that stage when you're early, when you figured out a process, that process may not be the end all be all, and there should be always someone that's looking for a better, unique way to to keep that process alive and afloat and 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 not just that but to maybe improve it and to you know to add an efficiency if you can etc so that's that's awesome so so you 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 did this through college you you're you're helping out the family business and then and then when did you start realizing you know what maybe I can start doing a thing or two on my own with my own with maybe maybe a business of my own or or did you start to look at your career path and what you were learning and did you say maybe I need to take a job somewhere like what was sort of your thought process on on taking a job working for someone or doing your own thing or did that thought even enter your into your mind yeah no I you know when you start off in like the family business mm-hmm you can't help but wonder what else is out there. And you're sort of like enamored on like, oh, like corporate America, I wonder what that's like. Mm -hmm. So interesting enough, through college, um, I did did an internship at GE. Oh, okay. And and so I did that over the summer. And I also like interned at a couple, like I did like a sort of a co-op project thing um, while I was still helping run the family business just to kind of get exposure to different things. And my next business, uh, I actually ended up starting my, it was like junior year, senior year, uh, with my freshman year roommate and a couple of other guys in my fraternity. And the way that happened, the way that I kind of laid out was, I did the GE internship in my junior year summer. And they loved it and I loved it. And they're like, all right, you gotta come back next summer. I'm like, sweet, I'm totally all in. And so I signed everything. I have like the apartment that they have for me. It's great. It's all ready to go. And literally the day before, I had to email them and say, "Hey, I'm really sorry. I will not be joining you guys this summer." Uh, and it was because my my freshman year roommate Pete, uh, one of my fraternity brothers uh, Garrett, and there were a few others. Like there was five of us all together. 
and we decided to start our own company. Wow. And that summer, like, instead of going to GE for the second time, and I think Pete was interning at IBM, we were like, this can't be it. Like, we're good at it, but this is not for us. And so we went and uh, started a company. It was like an online calendaring company. Uh, originally, uh, so Garrett was like sort of the mastermind behind this, and then he brought on Pete, and they brought me on, and then we had Glenn and Chris. Uh, originally, it was called My Pimp, and uh, <laughs> uh, we're a bunch of nerds, and it's personal information management portal, PIMP. Uh, <laughs> I can't even take credit for it, and it's awesomeness. That was all Garrett and Pete. Uh, and so uh, that's what we started as an online calendar. Uh, this is before Google Calendar or anything else came out, right at the beginning of the Web 2.0 movement. And so we started that, and we were in upstate New York going to a college called RPI. And we didn't really know much about Silicon Valley or about funding. We just knew about the web and Web 2.0 and Ajax and JavaScript and how like you could build all these new kinds of applications. So we got enamored in that, and we're like, we got to go build something. So that's what we did. And um, within a year, we won awards, we got tens of thousands of users, and then we got acquired. So by the time we were graduating, again, we had the decision, all right, like, do we do this My Pimp thing, which we actually rebranded to HipCout, uh, thankfully. <laughs> uh, do, we do, this, do we do this thing, or I guess we have to like dust up our resume and start interviewing, mm -hmm. that's what all our classmates were doing. And sure enough, like, Senior week, we didn't even get to party during senior week because we were being flown to California to this company that was like, all right, we want to buy you guys, we want to give you guys jobs, you're going to move to California, let's go do this. And we're like, oh, this is really weird. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so that's and like, so HipCal uh, ended up getting acquired um, and we joined Plaxo, which was also a startup, it was like a 40 person startup. Mm. So it was a pretty aggressive move for them to acquire us. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't like a tremendous amount of money, but for a bunch of college students that like, like alternatives that go apply to GE or IBM, like that was like the most amazing thing. Like it, it, Plaxo was an amazing company. Um, and we, that kind of gave us our springboard to go do even bigger things in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, so I always wanted, like, I'm like, I should do this bigger corporate America job, but no matter, like, I, I'm like, I should do it, but then like, I kept getting yanked. I think the universe kind of pulls you into the path that it that you need to be on, not the one that you think you need to be on. And we kept getting pulled into building companies, and that's that's sort of what I've done uh, for the longest period of time. Yeah, no, that's great. So, so let's talk about that for a second. So, so you were you were helping out the family with, with and you and you literally helped them scale that business. Um, you know, from, from like, I mean, I mean, when you, when you talk about the scale, it's just kind of crazy. It's like street corner to online million dollar business. Awesome. Or multi-million dollar business. Um, then, then you go to, then you do your thing with, with the college roommates that gets acquired. What specific skill sets do you think helped you navigate those things in both those scenarios specifically, um, with with HipCal, with your with your family business, like what like what did you take from that experience to 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 uh, you know to build HipCal and build that up and, and get that acquired? What are what are things that you sort of learned over those years? Oh, that's a good question. I think you know. <laughs> If there's like if there's like the one thing mm -hmm. um, that I would point to is uh, it's like know what your mission is I would say okay. uh, and I'm not talking about the frou frou like know your why and what you're <laughs> passionate about like I'm talking about like know what you're fighting for mm. um, you know like I worked crazy hours uh, during my teenage years for the family business like literally I went I went to this school called Townsend Harris it's right in New York City and Townsend Harris is known for like an enormous amount of workload and homework and pressure like it's a tough tough school and so literally my day was like I'd wake up like and we would have like zero zero periods like that's how crazy they were there was not first period it was a zero period so <laughs> I was like you're already waking up super early and you're going in for zero period and you'd have school the whole day and have school the whole day and then you have like a crazy amount of homework and then I would work on the family business till like midnight. And then I would go to sleep and then I would wake up again and like, kind of go at it again. 
And the weekends is when I caught up on whatever work I was behind on. Um, with HipCal, uh, you know, all of us, we, I had a double major in college. So I graduated with a computer science degree and a management degree. Uh, so you had a, you know, I had like a 20 credit course load. And on top of that, um, I was still helping the family business. And then we did HipCal. Um, and I think like you don't get to accomplish bigger things in life. Like even with Tout App, like I ran that company for nearly six years and then we sold it and ran, it was still under me for another two under in Marketo. Like you don't get to do those kind of things unless there's this, like there's this feeling of like, no, like this matters and I'm fighting for something. And that doesn't have to be just like the company you're building. It could be like, like for me, the reason I worked so hard was because like I wanted my family to be to be happy. Uh, I wanted my family to be successful. I wanted my little brother to have uh, access to things that even I didn't have access to. Uh, I wanted my parents to have an easier life. And I think like, and then with HipCal, like I wanted to do something that mattered. I wanted to build something that a lot of people would use and would help their lives. And, and I think like. You don't get motivated in a vacuum. You get motivated when when you know deep inside that what you're working on matters, or what you're fighting for matters, or the reward you're going to get when you accomplish a set of things matters. And I think that's the thing that like do a little work to figure that out because that's what I figured out. Like every job I ever took, every company that I ever started, I'm like, all right, why am I doing this? Like, what's the thing that really matters to the core of my being? And once you know that those extra hours or those crazy things you need to do or those really tough days when things are really bad and everyone's had those, I've had those. Even with the successes, I've had days that were really terrible. Remembering what like, what the mission is, like don't forget the mission uh, helps you kind of get through things and helps you like get going instead of just being complacent and not trying harder. Mm, that makes a lot of sense, right on. I think that, that can be a great uh, pathway for someone to follow whether they're building a business, whether they're not building a business, is know what that mission is, as you were saying, and that can kind of help at least lead them as to, to following some sort of a North Star and use that as a decision-making uh, uh, process. So that's, that's certainly uh, very, very helpful. Um, very, very cool. So, so you, you entered into that world. Um, you know, I, I guess there was some sort of motivating factor that told you, you know what, building things and building businesses just seems to be a better pathway. Uh, you you get this acquisition. They move you to California. Um, you know what would you know in all that experience, you know, and and whatnot as you know for you know that you've kind of encountered building building something that someone else looked at and said, this is something that I'm that I find valuable. What would you say your number one piece of advice would be to someone? Whether that's scaling their team, whether that's uh, you know building their business, a product or service, uh, what would you say your number one piece of advice to someone is in that same um, uh, situation or right before that situation, so to speak? Uh, before they figure out what their mission is, or exactly, sorry, yeah, clarify. exactly, yeah, before they figure out their mission, or or in terms of maybe okay. helping them get to the point where they have figured that out, what would you what would your advice be? Okay, got it. Yeah, like, um, honestly, figure out what you're good at. I, I think a lot of people try to, uh, like, if, you, if you're good at something, you're going to excel at it. If you, if you can excel at it, then, and I'm not saying great, I'm saying good. Mm. Like, if, you, if you've got the beginnings of, uh, like, oh, like I, 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 like, I enjoy this and I'm kind of good at it, then, like, put in the hours of work that's needed to get great at it mm. and when you get put in the hours of work to get great at it then you're going to be successful at it and I think that will lead to really great outcomes for you and I know that sounds simplistic and, and I think like a lot of things in life is actually a lot simpler than we allow it to be um, mm. figure out what like you're pretty good at and your life it's pretty good chance that you're you like it because you're good at it and go double down on it and try to understand the impact of that. If you can understand, like, if I do this, then these people get this, and they value that. Uh, if you can figure that out, then go create more of that value, because if you create more of that value, those people will reward you, and through that reward, your wealth will grow. Hmm. And that's how I've always looked at it. It's like, you know, with, with, with HipCal, 
it was like people just needed to get more organized. They have so many things, they have classes, they have fraternity events. Our value is like, we're just gonna help you organize your life. And people love that. And they felt calmer because of that. Um, when I worked at Tout App, um, we were trying to help sales teams. And the biggest problem that sales teams had was like, we didn't have enough leads. They didn't have enough pipeline. People weren't listening to their message and our software helped them do that. And um, they rewarded us for it. And the reason I enjoyed it was because we went to these people that were salespeople and they were doing these 50 things that were super manual and we said, hit this button and it's gonna automate it for you. And they loved us for it. And I think like, and we were good at that. And I, I know the one thing I'm really good at is looking at anything, any process, any business, any situation, trying to understand the pressure points. Like what are the things that's gonna like take like actually make this thing really work well together. What are the inefficiencies we can take out? I know that's a value that I can create. I'm like a fixer and I get I, I like I get pleasure from that. Like it makes me happy to see mm. the people's faces when we're like, you used to have to do this, now you need to do this and you're gonna be way more successful. Here's how and they're like, Oh my god, this is awesome and I love that. Um, and that's made turned to into a very lucrative career for me. But I would say figure out the thing you're pretty good at, like your it's like a superpower of yours. You're, it's unfair that you're actually good at that. You haven't even put in much effort into it yet. Mm. And then figure out how to get great at it. And getting great takes a lot of work. But if you do that, then the rewards come. I think that's great advice. A lot of people, um, I think, take the wrong romantic view at what they want to do with their career. I always tell people, look at your career in a practical sense and a romantic sense. Romantic being pie in the sky future, I would love to have the 20,000 square foot office, would love to have, you know, um, you know, an, you know, you know, a, a, an office or, or a company that sits on the hundredth floor of a bill of a sky, skyscraper, what have you, um, you know, romantic, maybe you'll get there at some point by following practical decisions on your career path and getting good at something and then, and then learning to be great, I think is extremely practical. Um, and it's, it's different than, than doing necessarily something you're passionate in. Um, just to make sure we're, we're, we're talking about the same things, you're talking about something different than, some, than something you might be passionate in, correct? Yeah, totally. Okay, okay. I think, I think like in life, you earn the right. Like it's all about earning mm. the right. No one owes you anything, no one can. <laughs> and you earn the right for attention, you earn the right to take on bigger things, you earn the right to uh, to like go after certain passions, uh, even if they don't pay right now. Like I think, and so if you're good at something, earn the right to like get like make money off of that. Use that money to go after bigger things and improve yourself. Mm -hmm. I think people sometimes like the whole follow your passion thing. It's like it's life is not an art project. <laughs> like you should go. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, go do the things that cre create value, and then take the rewards from that value, and go apply it towards the things that you wanna you wanna actually uh, get value from, mm. and then get the pleasure there. Um, that's at least the way after. And maybe that's like more like an like I'm an immigrant. Like that's my immigrant my mentality. Like <laughs> go do the hard work. <laughs> uh, that's how I always looked at it. No, I think I think that's a great way to look at it, especially for someone who's new in their career. They don't know what they want to do or build, right? It's easy to 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 figure that out by just going after go go after something that's right in front of you, low hanging fruit, what you're good at, right? Take that skill, yep. take it, make it to the point where you're great at something, and then assess: Is this something that I want to continue doing? Do I want to try something different? And it's easier to kind of navigate from there. I think that's great advice. Um, yeah. Very, very. There's, there's like, there's two things that I'd, I'd highlight on this that, mm -hmm. that's been very true and core to me. The, the first thing I'd highlight is uh, people tend to under, uh, they tend to overestimate what they can accomplish within a year. They tend to underestimate what they can accomplish in five years. Mm. And most people take like a one year view on things. Take a five year view. Like if you kind of like sit down, you go to a coffee shop and you meet with someone and this person, it, like you're you today and this person you're meeting with is actually you from five years ago, and you just explain all the things you're doing today, you from five years ago is going to be like, oh my God, I want to be that person. It's amazing like well, how they spend their day, what they're wearing, what they do, the kind of job that they have. Like, you tend to forget how, how much you've accomplished over a five-year span. And so I get people to think about like, what, like, what, was, what would five, five, you from five years ago think about you today? And then take a five-year view from now, like you from five years from now, what does that person look like? 
and start to create a path to get there. Like take a long view. I think everyone wants everything right now and mm -hmm. cool, but no one owes you anything. They're not going to give it to you unless like you have a really compelling reason to give it to you. Mm -hmm. Take a long view to just plan out the steps, the like do it like a bank heist on like what are the, here are the things that I'm going to do over the next five years to get to where I, the life that I want, and then you can accomplish a lot more that way. Makes so much sense. Makes so much sense. Very good. Uh, two subjects I want to talk to you about. Um, you know, moving moving through this. Uh, let's talk about you as a hiring manager in general. Uh, whether it's a business you're running, whether it's uh, one of these companies that brought you in after they acquired you. Um, what would you say your methodology is on hiring and firing? I'll give you some context to the question. Essentially, you know, when you have a company, that company is is really as good as the people that you bring on board. Um, you know, and so uh, some people have very different methodologies on, on you know, how quickly they should fire, who they should bring on, what that process should look like. What's the process that you've always followed when bringing on talent into your into an organization or department? Yeah, my view on this has evolved over time, but there's some certain core principles that have remained the same. I think number one, have a written out like one page process on how you hire people. Um, I think like so many companies have these like complicated interview uh, processes, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, it's like five people that have interviewed the person, they huddle together, and they're kind of like, I don't know, I kind of like that guy, let's hire him, and then they get hired. Um, <laughs> what they don't do is actually say, here are the five attributes that we care about, and let's debate and discuss what, what these attributes mean, like what, what is the definition of it, and how this person either does or does not fit into it. And so many times, companies will establish five attributes, but they'll have a yes, no, and a maybe. And the maybe is like, everyone just puts maybe, and they like it gets fuzzy again. It's like, I don't know, I kind of like that guy, let's hire them. So I, I would say like, have a yes or no, and have five attributes that really matter to you and the company and the culture of the company to hold yourself accountable on actually evaluating the person. Um, that's number one. I think number two is, um, hmm do reference checks and be honest with yourself with reference checks. A lot of people don't do the reference checks. Um, but, and then there are people that do, and I'm not talking about the reference check of like, hey, candidate, can you give me five people that'll say amazing things about you? I really want to do a reference check. Well, that is not a reference check. Like, don't even bother. Um, I'm talking about like, go on LinkedIn, see where they work, find who you know that works at those companies or may have crossed paths with this person. Call them up and say, hey, what do you think about this person? And oftentimes in those reference checks, sometimes they'll be honest with you, but oftentimes it's what they don't say is what will speak louder volumes about that person. Mm -hmm. So every bad hire I ever did, I like thought back to the reference check and I'm like, yep, I like, but like they tried to tell me this in so many words and I couldn't, like I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. Or I didn't want to because I was so excited about hiring this person. So like have clear principles and do reference checks. Those are the two, but really do those. I think a lot of people check the box on it and don't do it as well. And the third thing is, I think companies spend a lot of time on the hiring process and very little time on the performance management process. Mm. Like you'll kind of do a 30, 60, 90 day plan, but then you'll kind of forget about it because of shifting priorities. But what's more important for an organization is to be effective in firing the right people than hiring the right people. Uh, it's because that part of the, like you just get so many more data points once they're in the door. Within the first week, you're going to get more data points. And don't be afraid. Like within a three to six month period, aggressively manage the performance of that person. Be honest about whether they're performing or not. And that I think that's where really the company's health comes into play. Like it's not about getting in great people through the door. It's getting rid of the right people um, early on so that in the long view of the company, you have the right people in, in, in the building. Makes a lot of sense, right on. Very good. Now, I think that's great advice and, and something that should be followed. And it also can keep a company accountable to maintaining a specific culture, so that's great. Um, what would you say the number one thing is that can ruin an interview for you as a hiring manager? Um, <laughs> so many. <laughs> Um, the one thing I, I would say like, 
you, the worst thing is when like you get caught embellishing. It's like just be honest. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like I will, I will respect you more for mm. a failure that you're honest about than a failure that you try to cover up and spin because, like we know, mm. <laughs> especially you know hiring managers, you know. On a given week, we'll, if we're active, if, it, if it's for an important role, mm -hmm. we will probably meet with ten candidates in a week. Like we probably will, mm -hmm. and and I, I've done that. And so you just get so good, you get so good at reading people's faces, their reactions, for that particular job. Like you know exactly what the pressure point conversations are. Like you know if I'm if I'm hitting a if I'm interviewing a salesperson, I'm like, did you hit your number? Like the last three years, did you hit your number? And that's a pressure point question, and how they answer that. Do they answer that in a truthful way? Do they own the, own it? Do they just blame someone else? Mm. Do they talk about if they learned something on whether they did well or not? Do they talk about like, yeah, like I had my best years in the last three years. Here's my W two. Like that that is an opportunity to show your character, and I think uh, a lot of a lot of hires fumble on that. Yeah, they try to like gloss over that piece. I think failures is a really interesting topic in the interview process because uh, there's some people that are you know very fundamentally against showing some kind of weakness or 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 failure. But I you know I'm sort of leaning towards the the th thought that people need to be more vulnerable about failures and mistakes in the interview process. I know it's a place where you're supposed to show the best of yourself, but what are your thoughts on that front? Because you know like a question like hey, what's your biggest weakness or what's something that you you know that you're that you're working on that you're not good at that you're trying to learn about. Well, what's your thought about those types of questions and how to and how someone should respond to those in the interview process? Well, here's like from a candidate point of view, like just from me, selfish TK, like I'm going to go get a job. Mm -hmm. um, I know there are two kinds of jobs out there. There's one kind of job that I can go do. It's like I've done it. I've made all the mistakes. In the prior roles, I can like go hit this hard, and I can be successful. There's another kind of job where I'm going to grow. It's a little scary. It's definitely a stretch for me. I'm going to make some mistakes, but over the years, I've learned how to make mistakes and recover from them quickly. So I'm going to I'm going to move fast. So those are the two kinds of jobs. Now, hiring managers know that, and so if you can be honest about, look. I've never done like I've never done this role before. I've done roles similar, um, but here are the mistakes that I've made in the past, and I got good at those. And here are the mistakes I have to watch out for in this new role. And here's how I'm going to recover from them, and I'm going to deliver it for you. Like that is an honest way of positioning yourself versus saying like, yeah, I can totally do this. Whereas when I look at your resume, I'm like, there's no way this guy this guy's never done it before. But if they have an honest view in it, then I'm like, okay, cool. Like I'll bet on this guy. Like he he's betting on himself. He's He's honest about his current situation. That's great, and so I think that that's how, that's the advice that I would give. It's like just have a clear assessment on where you stand and where your weaknesses are, and highlight them and talk about how you can overcome them. Um, so many candidates just like gloss over that, and that's like just annoying in, in an interview. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely, and it can it can ruin an interview for someone. It can be the difference between them getting that role or not getting it. Um, very, very good. Changing gears a little bit, let's talk a little bit about your own personal motivation and then, um, you know, the Unstoppable series uh, that you've created. What would you say, you know, all the different, you know, exits you've been a part of, different um, things that you've built over the years, um, you know, from helping your, 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 your family business to, to now, you know, you know, you know, the Marketo exit, the whole bit, and now you're on to your next thing. What would you say drives you to do all of that? <laughs> uh, growth. I mean, I think, I think I'm driven by two things. The first is growth. Uh, I want to become a better version of myself every day. And the second thing I'm driven by is contribution. I, I want to give back. Um, I, I've been fortunate to uh, reap the rewards of the things that I've worked on and I'd like to give back. And so from a growth perspective, um, after we sold HipCal and I did Plaxo, um, 
after, even after Plaxo, I'm like, I'm not ready to start another company, but I want to learn more. I want to grow in terms of how businesses work, and that's why I joined Bridgewater, mm. uh, and, I, and I worked at Bridgewater. And then I was ready, I'm like, all right, now I want to go build a company. I want to raise venture capital, I want to go build a software company, I want to impact it and bring on customers. Like, I want to do it all. And so we went on to be backed by Andreessen Horowitz and Jackson Square Ventures and Founder Collective, we raised about 20 million. And then we created a category on sales engagement. And then we sold it to Marketo. And then I, I stayed at Marketo, I'm like, all right, well, like, Tout App, I took from the zero, zero to seven million ARR. Marketo's like trying to get to 500 million ARR. And I'm, I'm like, I'm an exec there. So I ended up running corporate strategy, corporate development. I ended up running Europe for a quarter. I ended up running ANZ for a quarter. Mm. And all of these were like impossible projects that they were like, hey, like, can you do this thing? And I'm like, I, probably not, Like, but I have this experience. <laughs> this is the things I'm worried about. And this, this is like the big mess that we have. So here's how I would approach it. And like, okay, go do it. And like, let's figure it out. I'm like, all right, cool, let's figure it out. And I did, and we went and did all those things. And all of those were around growth. I'm like, I'm going to learn more. Um, and so once we sold Marketo, um, you know, my view was ever since I was 12, I'm like, all right, I'm going to grind in my 20s to do whatever is necessary to create as much wealth as possible. And then in my 30s, I want to be able to do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. uh, and so after Marketo, I got to a point where I'm like, all right, I think I can do almost whatever I want, like not completely, but pretty close. And I want to give back more. And so that's why I said, all right, let me just take some time off. And it's the first time, I'm 36 now, it's the first time I don't have a job since I was 12 years old. But wow. I had, and I had <laughs> multiple jobs when I was in my teenage years. Um, and that's where I created Unstoppable. I'm like, I learned all these things around how to manage your mind, how to set goals, how to manage your time, how to manage your finances, how to grow, how to learn. like. And these are all things people can go through 30 years of schooling and they will not have a single class that they take that traditional institutions will teach you. Mm -hmm. It's insane. And I think that if you're part of a relatively upper middle class wealthy family, um, you will have a family that will teach you these things just through everyday interactions. But if you are from a different socioeconomic background, you will never learn these things and mm -hmm. you will constantly be stacked like the odds will be stacked against you. Um, and so that's kind of the main reason why I created Unstoppable. I'm like, there are these core basic things that never get taught in schools or in higher education. And unless you are personally seek it out, you won't, you, and read tons of books like I did, you won't learn it. And so, you know, to tie a bow on all of it, like I grinded through 20s and through part of my 30s. And now I'm like, all right, let me, like I've had a ton of growth. And before I pick up the next project where I want to grow again, and I will, um, let me let me focus a little bit more on contribution. And that's why I'm focused on Unstoppable. Um, we do an episode every Sunday. Uh, we have an online guide, a five-step guide. We have an Instagram uh, account um, where uh, we have nearly 13,000 followers. It's all people that are interested in living a more proactive life. And in the episodes, in our Instagram posts, in the guide, we teach you. We teach you the basic things around how do you goal set? How do you manage your time? How do you actually take a five-year view on yourself? How do you actually tr check in on your goals? How do you deal with anxiety on a Sunday afternoon when you got that pit in your stomach and you're dreading Monday and you hate your job? You want that dream job, but you don't know how to like plot the plan to go from here to there. Um, and those are the things that we teach you and I do have a book coming out. It's called uh, How to Punch the Sunday Jitters in the Face. Uh, it's coming out in a, in a few weeks. And it goes in depth into all these things that I talked about. Um, and that's my way, like, that's a contribution piece. It's like, how do I give back everything I've learned over the last, since I was 12, basically, uh, working and setting goals and getting to the things that I want. I love it. I love it. This is my favorite topic, probably, in business is is motivation, right? And. I mean, I, I mean, if if there was no time limit, I could talk about motivation for probably for hours um, on end. <laughs> um, but but a very I have a very interesting question for you. You know, especially with Unstoppable, I think it's literally um, I, I I'm I, I believe our 
um, methodologies are aligned on that front, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on this question. Do you believe that motivation can be taught? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think uh, mo- motivation is not like you don't just get up and like I'm gonna get motivated. Motivation is a result. Motivation is like uh, motivation is not something you do. It's an outcome. You you are motivated. That's how I look at it. And so the focus is less so on motivation. The focus is more so on like. How do, we, how do we get you to figure out what you care about? When you care about something, then the result of it is motivation. When you care about a certain outcome, you're motivated to go to accomplish that outcome. Most people don't know what they care about. Mm-hmm. Most people just want to watch Netflix because it's much harder to figure out what they care about. Um, and I think that if you can teach people a way to understand and identify, here's what I want out of life. Um, you know, the average human in a um, relatively well-to-do country lives 79 years, just on average. Forget weird circumstances and uh, scientific breakthroughs that may allow you to live longer. You get 79 years. 79 years feels like a long time, unless you start thinking about it like, that means you get 79 birthdays. You get 79 summers. And you get 79 day, uh, Christmas presents, like Christmas days. You get 79 times that you're gonna, uh, I don't know, experience the longest day of the year. Only 79 times. All of a sudden you start to realize it's not that long of a time and you wanna make the most of it and you wanna figure out what you actually care about. Uh, and so that's how I think about motivation. It's like, it's, it can certainly be taught, but it's not about teaching motivation in my opinion. It's more about like, what do you care about? Like, what do you wanna do? Maybe it's nothing. Like, all right, how do you, how do you get really good at doing nothing? Like even that's gotta, like, there's a way to do it well. So that's that's what I would say. Okay, okay, very cool. Yeah, I think there's something to be said there. Yeah, so my view is 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 very similar. I, I believe that everyone has some level of motivation that just has to be found, right? And and, and however you ch- however you find that motivation, it could be, you know, a no-win scenario that someone believes they're facing. Uh it could be a gun to someone's head. It could be um, you know, you know, some, some, something they see that they can potentially win or achieve and they, and they, and their brain makes that connection. If I do this, I can achieve this. Um, but I think, I think motivation can be found and that we can teach people how to find that motivation. Um, there's a, there's a influencer, uh, uh, called Jim, uh, Jim Quick, I believe is his name. Uh, he does a test that says, you know, you know, if I if there's 30 people in a room, uh, can you remember everyone's name um, in you know in that in that room? Most people probably say no because 30 names is tough to remember. <laughs> but he says, but he says, hey, if I gave you 100 grand, would you be able to remember the, their names? And he said most right. people would say yes. <laughs> Just you care about the 100 grand yeah. exactly. You care about the 100 grand. You're going to do everything you can to remember someone's name. And so I think I think that's that's the key. Is is you know the guys that are sitting around watching Netflix. You know, to your point that that haven't figured out what they want to do or or what or what motivates them or drives them. I think I think you know blogs like yours. You know, podcasts like yours, Unstoppable, can help them figure that piece out so that they. So that they get there quicker. So, so kudos to you on that. Um, final que- final questions I have, you know, are around career navigation. You know, you've taken a very interesting path with your career, with what you wanted to do, with with the um, you know the the processes that you followed, the the different positions you've taken on, the companies you started. How important would you say career navigation? was for you would you say you thought of it that way that 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 you're checking off boxes that you outlined for yourself or did it sort of did you sort of just sort of follow that pathway uh to see where it led you um i i didn't really have like a master master plan of like i want to like do this and then do this and then do this i think it was like i want to go do this this like feels like the right next thing to do and if I'm able to do this, then uh, I can. Then it opens up 
possibilities into bigger things. And so I kind of took it at a step-by-step, like, the, here's what's next and here's what I want to do. And if I choose this one path versus this other path, there's second order consequences. So that's how I approached it. Mm. Um, I think it's impossible to really know um, exactly the steps that you can go check off. And oftentimes, mm-hmm. if you, then you get too obsessed with checking off the boxes instead of living the journey. Mm. And you want to live the journey. A like, perfect example of that is like, I really wanted to start a company with my friends in college, and we did. Mm-hmm. Now, we had no idea about Silicon Valley. Like, that didn't even enter my mind. So there's so many things about the world that you don't even know about yet. And the world is changing. And even with that, like, you don't even know how all that works. And so it's impossible to plot it all out, but it's important to pause and reflect. I'm a big believer mm-hmm. in pausing and reflecting. And so from my point of view, it was like, all right. How do I pause and reflect at every big inflection point? How do I think about the second order consequences of my decisions? And how do I grow from there? And that's how I always looked at it. And if there's one guiding principle I've always had, like when, whether it was like leaving Bridgewater to start ToutApp or uh, leaving Plaxo to go to Bridgewater or leaving Marketo and Adobe even recently, um, I'm, I go back to the two things that drive me. I'm driven by growth and I'm driven by contribution. And so if I'm not growing, then, then like I, it, I know it's time for a change. Mm. And the way you know you're growing or not is when was, like you try to check in on when was the last time you feel, felt like scared. You're headed into a meeting or you're headed into a day and you're like, oh my God, like, I have no idea how I'm going to go conquer this thing. <sighs> and then you, know, you kind of work through it and you, you figure it out and you come out on the other end. You just grew. That's how you know you're growing. If you don't have days like that, at least once or twice a month, then you're not growing. And it's time to make a change. And that's how I looked at it. Wow. That's a great way to look at that. That's great advice. Excellent. Um, well, this has been great, TK. We'll wrap it here. Uh, really appreciate the time that, you, that you've given us today. If people are interested in Unstoppable or, or learning more about your journey, how can they get in touch in touch or, or what what's something they can look up to find you yeah absolutely go to get everything is over there excellent